So today we are continuing our study of a Christian in Babylon. This is our study of the book of Daniel. We're coming up to Daniel chapter 9 today. Um, If you've been tracking with us this whole series, you might wonder, well, last week we were in Daniel 6. How did we get all the way to Daniel 9? Uh, A couple things. First of all, we had skipped up to Daniel 7 earlier in October um, to study it for Reformation, so we've already done chapter 7. And we're skipping chapter 8 in our study uh, for two reasons, really. At some point, we just have to cut some things out because we can't study Daniel forever. Um, And the other reason reason is, of the chapters of Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 8 is actually relatively easy to understand. I say relatively because Daniel is a challenging book, but if you would read through it, I think you would get basically what's going on in the chapter. So for the sake of time, we're going to skip chapter 8 and go directly to chapter 9. Uh, I encourage you to follow along today. If you do have a Bible uh, in your pocket with your phone, you can do that. Of course, we also have paper Bibles back there. I'll be glad to have you grab one of those. Um, I'm excited to see so many unfamiliar faces today with us. Uh, it also is a little bit terrifying for me. Um, And here's why. Daniel chapter 9 is one of the more challenging chapters in the entire Bible. (laughs) And so what we're going to talk about today is going to be pretty atypical for uh, a Sunday at Cross of Life. I'm going to try to make this really practical for you, um, but there is just a certain level at which this is going to be nerdy and thick and deep. And if you're into that, cool. Uh, If you're not, come back next week and keep coming back because um, what we have here is just, it's a challenging section of scripture. Um, And yet we'll also see that it proclaims the really cool truths uh, of God. So I'm going to read the chapter for us, uh, Daniel chapter nine. You can follow along with me and then we'll study it together. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps the covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We've been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all of Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, O Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God and kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses uh, and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who have made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned. We have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away from your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your your city, your holy hill. 
Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord, my God, for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come and destroy the city and uh, who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. Wars will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. This is God's word. So as we're reading this, I'm I'm sure you could note there are really two sections to this text. There is the prayer section where Daniel is coming to God in prayer, and then there is Gabriel's answer to Daniel's prayer from God. And you probably also noticed, as you're paying attention to the reading, that the prayer section is relatively easy to understand, and the uh, answer that Gabriel gives turns the difficulty up to 11. Uh, you have a very, really, a very simple section of Scripture to understand, followed by a very difficult section of Scripture to understand. And unfortunately, if you would hear most sermons on Daniel 9, you would get a sermon that exclusively would focus on those last couple verses. And we will, we'll talk about them, but I don't want to lose the forest for the trees in this chapter. And so I want to take both parts of this chapter, take just a few minutes to organize ourselves around the first part of chapter nine, and then we'll take some time at the end to go through the end of the chapter and the difficult portion. So if you have notes, you can follow along with me here. The first point is just to look at Daniel's prayer, and I want to look at three things that I think are interesting about his prayer. Um, Those three things are that he prayed, how he prayed, and what he prayed. So let's just take a look back at just the first couple verses of the text, and then I want to note these things with you. Uh, The text starts by saying, in the year of Darius, son of Xerxes who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and sackcloth and ashes. 
So we find out as we start the text that this is the first year of Darius or Cyrus. Uh, We got introduced to him last time. We found out that he was the first ruler of the medial Persian empire that came in and conquered the Babylonians. It says that this is the first year of his reign. So this would also be the same year that Daniel was just thrown into the lion's den, uh, interestingly. What we find out from the text is that uh, Daniel is reading from the prophet Jeremiah, which we said was probably from Jeremiah 29, which we read earlier, because he discerns from reading the scriptures that the Babylonian exile is only going to take 70 years. Uh, Remember, Daniel went into the Babylonian exile in 605 BC. It is now 538 BC. If you're just doing straight math, that means that he's at about 67 years uh, into this Babylonian exile. So he's thinking to himself, well, it's about time. It's getting pretty close to that 70-year mark. Um, Just as a quick tangent, I do think it's really interesting. God promises that the the people of Israel are only going to be in uh, Babylonian captivity for 70 years, but he actually makes that about as short as he possibly can within those 70 years. Uh, He actually makes it closer to 68 years, but the way you can justify it is saying it actually touches 70 different years. Uh, Very soon after this moment where where Daniel is praying, uh, God is going to, through Darius, Cyrus, make the decree that God's people can go back to Jerusalem. Um, So God is actually merciful even in his exile. He doesn't actually make them stay in the full 70 years. He makes them stay in as long as he, or short as he possibly can within 70 years, which is really cool. It's a show of God's mercy, that God, even though he disciplines, he wants to be merciful. So anyways, Daniel notices this. He sees these 70 years of exile, and his response to this is that he's going to pray. Um, Now, this is the first point that I want you to note, that he prayed. I think it's interesting that Daniel prays in this moment, uh, because if he's anything like me, he would have read the Bible, read the promises in the Bible, and then closed the Bible and said, awesome, right? That's great. God said that thing, and I believe that God says the truth, and I believe that that's going to come to pass, so I guess I can just move on with my life. God's got this, right? You ever done that? You read a promise in the scripture and you're like, my sins are forgiven? Awesome, right? God has a plan for me? Awesome. God has purpose for me? Awesome. But Daniel's response is to pray, which I think is interesting because how quick we are to avoid prayer with some sort of seemingly pious reason of like, well, God already knows, right? Why should I pray? God already knows, Why should I pray? God already said it in the Bible. It's already going to come true. Why should I pray? And yet Daniel does. Like reading the scripture leads him to pray for something that he knows is going to happen. He comes back to God and says, God, it's about time for this promise to come true. Please make it happen. Maybe another way to think of this is that for Daniel, just reading the Bible motivates him to prayer. He's pushed to prayer by reading God's words because he understands that God is God and he is not. And if we have an attitude that thinks God is sort of my assistant, he's here to give me some good advice, some good direction in life, make me feel a little bit better about myself, I'm not motivated whenever he talks to pray. But if I think he's God, and I think his words give eternal life, then I'm motivated to pray. If I know what he's done for me, if I know the love he has for me, then I'm motivated to pray. And this is true in any of your relationships, right? There are some relationships where relaying of information is important. Most of them exist in your office, right? You don't feel the need necessarily to respond to an email that's just giving you some information. But if your significant other or your children come and tell you something, you speak back to them because you love them 
and because what they say to you is important, and the same is true with God. Daniel prays because he reads the scripture. And maybe to just flip this idea on its head for a second, I think it's important that Daniel prays from the scripture. Because how quick for us are we praying out of our hearts rather than out of the scriptures? Like we pray because, I don't know, we just feel like it, right? Like something's going on in my life and I just react to it. And that's not necessarily wrong, but if we look at the model that scripture gives for us for prayer, prayer comes from the scripture. Um, I tried to track down this quote. It's just a quote that's in my brain and I can't remember who said it, so forgive me for not attributing this. Um, But when we pray from our heart, we pray from a dry cistern. When we pray from the scriptures, we pray from an overflowing well. Because what's in my heart? Darkness, selfishness, arrogance. And if that's what motivates my prayers, how dark and selfish and arrogant are my prayers going to be? Now, no doubt there's a new person in me that wants to please God, but, but if I'm just praying from what I feel or I think or I want, how quickly that can be a non-God-pleasing prayer. But when I pray from the scriptures, when I read the scriptures and say, well, that's what the Bible wants me to pray for, my prayers are an overflowing well because they're God's words. God's words spoken back to him. The prayers that he wants to hear, the prayers that he promises to answer. This is why I press on you to pray the Psalms, to not pray your own words. I hear this sometimes from you. I don't know what to say because I don't know how to make prayers. I feel very uncomfortable when asked to pray in public. Don't do that. Pray the Psalms. God's given you prayers to pray. Use his words to motivate your prayers. Okay, so that's the fact that he prayed. Secondly, I want to focus on how he prayed. You notice in the text that he puts on sackcloth and ashes and he fasts as he prays. Now, we know in the New Testament we're not required to fast with praying, and sackcloth and ashes is more of a cultural way of expressing mourning over something terrible. In this case, of course, for Daniel, it's the sin that he has and his people have had. But what I wanted us to think about for a moment is, like, what would be the cultural equivalent for us today? Like, what would be the cultural equivalent of mourning that would look like sackcloth and ashes in Daniel's day for us? Would it be like, lock yourself in your room for a day? Take the day off work so you can pray? Turn off your phone so you can focus on prayer for a day? I don't know exactly what it would look like, that's maybe for you to discuss. But then I wanna ask ourselves, do we ever feel that bad about our sin that we wanna pray about it like that? Or is our sin sort of like a minor inconvenience, this sort of nagging problem that we, yeah, we really should take care of that. It's kind of like your oil chain in your car, like you know it's supposed to happen, but you're like, oh, I could probably put on another thousand kilometers and not worry about it. Or is it something that like stops our life in its tracks? And we say, no, I have to deal with this. I have to pray about this. I want to ask us, first of all, do we ever feel like that about our sin, but then also, would we ever pray with that kind of earnestness? Would we pray sort of like shooting off an email? Better get that out there. Or do we pray like we're having a serious conversation with the God of the universe? How Daniel prays models for us how we ought to pray as well. Then finally, I want to notice what he prayed. Of course, he's praying for the forgiveness of his own sins and the sins of his people. And what I want to ask us to consider is, When's the last time we prayed for the forgiveness of somebody else? 
When's the last time somebody sinned against us and our first prayer to God was, God, please forgive them. It's so much easier when, when we're sinned against to react in anger or at least the silence treatment. But for Daniel, whose like, literal entire life was ruined by the sin of his people, because let's be honest, Daniel's probably not the reason that Israel got sent into exile. And yet, because his people got sent into exile from age about 14 to now he's about 80, he's been in Babylon, he's been in exile. Like His whole life has been ruined because of somebody else's sin. And yet his first reaction is, Father, forgive them. Sounds like another man, right? Father, forgive them for they they don't know what they're doing, Jesus said from the cross. As Jesus saw our sin against him that literally ruined his life to the point where he had to take on the wrath of God in the death on a cross, he was motivated to compassion, to love. And what about the same for us? When someone sins against us, is our first reaction to say, they're so terrible, I can't believe they did that, I would never do something like that, or is our first reaction to say something is plaguing them, sin is attacking them, that they feel like they need to act like that toward me. I feel so bad for them. Father, please forgive them. Please give them the only thing that can solve that pain that's in their heart that is showing itself and how it attacks me. And then maybe as a secondary application of this, when's the last time we prayed for our nation? Right? It's a little bit different, of course. Israel in the Old Testament is God's chosen people. Canada in 2022 is not God's chosen people. And yet, when's the last time we've prayed for our nation? That God would forgive the wickedness that we see around us. The wickedness that is in us, right? And that God would spare our land from the judgment that we absolutely deserve. When have we fallen on our knees and, and prayed that God would bless our nation and forgive our wickedness? So, Daniel prays these things, and I wanted you to note them. And, and then he gets an answer from, from Gabriel, and that answer is puzzling. <laughs> it's a little bit challenging, right? And, and so for the rest of our time today, I, I want to dig deep on this, this section of what Gabriel says to, to Daniel. But first, because this is going to get a little bit nerdy, and it might get a little bit long, what I want you to do is we're all going to take a break right here, okay? So what I want you to do is for one minute, stand up and tell somebody near you which of those first three points you thought was the most interesting or the most effective on you, okay? One minute, and then we'll all sit down and we'll strap in for the second half of this text. Stand up, tell somebody what was interesting to you. Go ahead. Thanks everyone for doing that. I did that for two reasons. First of all, to just keep your blood flowing, but second of all, because I don't want you to lose that first part of the text as we dig into the second half here. We're gonna look at verses 24 through 27. Um, but before I do that, I gotta give you a little bit of a preamble uh, because this is arguably the most challenging section in the entire Bible. Um, John, James Montgomery, he, was a, a, he is a famous Old Testament uh, scholar. He says that Daniel 9, 27 to, or 24 to 27 is the dismal swamp of Old Testament interpretation. Jerome, the old uh, church father from the 5th century, he wrote a commentary on Daniel. And in this section, he writes down nine different ways you can understand this text and says, I'm not sure which one's right. And my Old Testament professor, when I was in seminary, said this is the most controversial word in the most controversial sentence in the most controversial section of the entire Bible. 
Uh, now, that can be a little bit intimidating as you hear that and, and wonder how we're going to exactly wrap our minds around this. I think I have a strategy, though, so uh, bear with me. The place we need to start is with biblical understanding. How do we read the Bible? There are a number of different rules for how to read the Bible. Most of them are just common sense. Um, But the one that I want to focus on with you today is the rule that you should understand unclear passages in the light of clear passages. Understand unclear passages in the light of clear passages. Uh, It turns out the Bible is not always clear. Now, that doesn't mean it's not always true. It does not mean that God is not always saying something that is important for us to know, But it is saying that sometimes we read the Bible and it's not clear exactly what it is saying. To illustrate this for you, uh, let's say um, you're asking somebody to help you move. So you send them a text and you say, hey, I'm moving on Saturday. Can you come over and help me move? And the answer you get back is, sure. What does that mean? Does that mean that that your friend who you're asking to help you move is really excited and enthused to come over and help you move your stuff? Or is it, yeah, I'll do it. Not because I want to. (laughs) You don't know, right? You don't know from just reading a text message whether that's an enthusiastic sure or a totally disinterested sure. It's unclear. Now, did the person who sent you that text have an intention behind that message? Absolutely. Were they trying to communicate something? Absolutely. It's your fault that you don't understand it. You need more information. And so you will go to maybe your previous relationship with the person. Like, does that person generally like to help you with things? Or maybe you had a conversation previously where they said, hey, if you ever move, I'd be glad to help you. Well, those are clear things that help you understand this unclear thing. So we do the same thing with the Bible. When we come up to an unclear section of the Bible, we say, well, the unclear section could make us think any number of things. So are there clear sections of the Bible that tell us what is true that we can read these things in light of? And the Bible says numerous clear things, right? I and the Father are one, Jesus says. Or there's no one who gets to the Father except through me. Or baptism now saves you. This is my body, um, Jesus says. Like these are very clear sections that it's kind of hard to mess them up. And so are there any clear sections that help us understand this unclear section? Well, there, there are. And so what I hope we can do is kind of play Sudoku with this. And if you don't know Sudoku, then I'm sorry, this analogy is lost on you, but I'm trusting that many of you have at least tried it. Sudoku is a game where you know some of the numbers and you use the numbers that you know to figure out the numbers that you don't know. And the same thing is what we're going to do here. We're going to look at these spaces that are not exactly clear as to what they're saying. And we're going to ask the question, are there clear sections of the Bible that inform these unclear sections? So uh, that's kind of where we're going to go as we read this text. The problem is that doesn't solve everything for us uh, because there are still people who read the clear sections of the Bible and look at this unclear section of the Bible and come to some slightly different conclusions. And so we're not going to figure out every single last thing about this text and every single last difference that you could have. We're not going to be like Jerome and have our nine different options and work through every single one of them. But what I do want for you is to have a way to read this text that makes sense, that allows the clear passages of scripture to inform what you're reading. And I want to make sure you don't completely mess this up. Because unfortunately, there is a large contingent of North American Christianity that completely messes this text up. Uh, Think of it like this. So let's say there's three guys and they're all looking at a car 
and they're discussing what the car looks like. And so the first guy says about the car, I think it's, I think it's like a really dark green paint job on this. And the other one says, no, 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 it's black. It's definitely black. And the third guy says, I think it's a cow. Right, like we're trying to be one of those two guys who are arguing about the paint color. We're like, most of this we got. There might be some slight deviations between what we understand here, but we're not off the deep end. So we're gonna, we're gonna focus on first, what does the text say? in light of the clear passages of scripture. We're also gonna take some time to talk about a thing called premillennial dispensationalism, which is basically one of the most predominant views of this text in North America today that is absolutely dead wrong. And then I wanna come back and find the glorious gospel in this text because it is so easy to get lost in the weeds and miss the main point of this, okay? So those are the three places that we're going to go. So the first thing I want to do is just walk through this text, and I'm going to tell you what, after a lot of study, I believe this text is saying, okay? There might be some slight deviations, but I'm pretty sure this is what the Bible is teaching us. And I'm not going to reference every single clear passage, but understand that that is my perspective as I read through this. I put the text on your notes sheet, so if you do want to follow along there and circle or highlight or write little things in the margins, whatever you need to do uh, as I go through this, this is what I believe the text is saying to us. It starts by saying, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint most holy place. So he starts by saying there's 77s. Sevens would be a uh, Hebrewism for a week, so like seven days. Uh, the issue here is that this is absolutely not seven days, and no one thinks that it is, uh, even the people who really messed this text up. They all realize this is symbolic. Um, it's not actually seven-day periods, but it is symbolic in some way. For us, we know that because we've seen the number seven used symbolically already in Daniel, we can read this as God's complete timing. Seventy-sevens is just God saying, the amount of time that is necessary for me to accomplish what I need to accomplish. Right? Seven is the number of God's complete timing. You may even think of Jesus in the Gospels where Jesus says to Peter, uh, you should forgive your brother 77 times or 70 times seven, depending on exactly how you read the text. What is Jesus saying? Is he saying 490 times you get forgiven and then after that you're fresh out of luck, buddy? No, he's saying forgive as many times as is necessary to fulfill God's promise to forgive all the time. Right? And so, so 77s for us is just saying there's a set amount of time where God is going to do his stuff. What is he doing? Well, you see it in the text, right? He's going to finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, bring in everlasting righteousness, etc., etc. Um, but the last of these deserves a little bit of a note quickly to anoint the most holy place. Um, this is a place where the New Testament translators of the NIV um, have shown their bias a little bit. This is not what the text says in Hebrew. And unfortunately, the people who translated the New International Version have a bias of what they think this text should say, and fortunately, it's wrong. Um, and so they actually import uh, words into this text that aren't there in the original languages. Uh, in the Hebrew, it does not say most holy place, it says most holy one. Most holy one. To anoint the most holy one. Who would the most holy one be? Well, I think you can guess already, but I won't spoil it for you until the next verse. Uh, the issue is that when, when these translators look at this text, they think that this text is going to primarily be about rebuilding Jerusalem. Unfortunately, it's not. It's about Jesus and Jesus coming. Oops, I said it. Uh, so we can't read it as being about Jerusalem. I need to note that for you. We'll explain why later, but for now, just keep that in your brain. Okay? So he says, there's a time I'm going to accomplish all of these things. He continues, 
No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Okay, so first, there's going to be a word that is going to go out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And this happened. Cyrus, or as we know him, Darius, the ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire, actually within the year of this prophecy from Gabriel, um, sends out a word that the Israelites can now go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. And again, just a quick cool side note about this. If you read the book of Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies that this is going to happen, and he uses Cyrus's name 200 years before this even happens. You read the book of Isaiah, and it says, Cyrus will do this 200 years before Cyrus even existed. So really cool, right? The Bible, again, shows its ability to, well, be from God, that it's able to prophesy these things in the future. But anyway, Cyrus makes this, this proclamation that the Jews can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. Now he says, the other end of this, the other book end of this, is when the anointed one or the ruler comes. So who's this anointed one? It's Jesus. The word there in Hebrew is Messiah, which is usually translated Messiah. Uh, in Greek, it's Christ. Uh, it's just the marker of who Jesus is. So from the moment that Cyrus proclaims that you can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city until Jesus comes, there are going to be Oops, excuse me. There are going to be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Um, again, remember the sevens are symbolic. And so what we understand this to be is a shorter period of time and a longer period of time. And there's some healthy debate about exactly what these times are. Um, my sense of it is that the first seven sevens is the time of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So like Cyrus makes this proclamation that we rebuild Jerusalem. It doesn't happen like that, right? Everybody has to travel and then everyone has to get the materials and then everyone has to rebuild the buildings and the walls and everything. And that takes some time. So... That first seven is just that time of rebuilding. And the 62 is the time after Jerusalem is sort of back to normal until Jesus comes. So two periods within that time. It continues that it, that is the city, will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble, which is true. Jerusalem was rebuilt, and yet the Jews were very heavily persecuted during this time. You can look up Antiochus IV Epiphanes uh, from the second century BC. He was particularly treacherous against um, the people of God in the Old Testament. Uh, don't read it with your kids. It's really violent and gory, but it, it really happened. Um, that's how much he hated them. He continues then, after the 62 sevens, so after this longer period of time, from when Jerusalem is back to normal until Jesus comes, right? The anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. That's Jesus, right? Jesus gets crucified on the cross. He dies for your sins and for my sins to put an end to sin, right? To put it away, just like we said at the beginning of this prayer. He continues then, the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay, so who is the ruler, first of all? Well, you need to only look back one verse in your text and see that the ruler is the anointed one. It's Jesus, right? The anointed one, the ruler. And so it says the people of the ruler will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. And that might be at least uh, at first a little bit hard for us because we think, oh, who are the people of Jesus? They're the believers in Jesus, right? Um, except that's not exclusively how the, the term is used. Uh, the term can be used for any group of people or nation that God uses to accomplish his purposes. 
So God actually talks this way about the Babylonians, right? Um, he says, these are, these are my instruments. These are my people that I'm using to accomplish my purpose. And so uh, what the text is saying here is Jesus is going to ordain that there will be people who will come in and destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple, which again happens. In 70 AD, the Romans destroy the temple, and in 135 AD, under the rule of Hadrian, uh, the entire city of Jerusalem is leveled. That's what he says. He says that end will come like a flood. War will continue to the end and desolations have been decreed. Uh, Desolations is just um, like desecrating of the holy places of Jerusalem, which of course also did happen. He then continues that he, that's the Messiah, that's Jesus, will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Uh, so what's this covenant that Jesus is confirming? Well, you, you could have any, any number of things where Jesus is talking about promises of the Old Testament covenant coming to an end and the New Testament covenant coming into place. You might think of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 34, where God says, I will have a new covenant where I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. That's a great place to go. Um, personally, I'm a fan of the place where Jesus literally says, this is the new covenant, which is when he gives bread and wine to his disciples and says, this is my body, and this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And we know that the new covenant where God forgives our sins happens at the Lord's Supper, when bread and wine that are Jesus' body and blood go into our mouth and forgive our sins. That absolutely happens right here. He continues by making this point that in the middle of that seven, when he confirms this new covenant, the old covenant is going to pass away, right? The sacrifices and the offerings of the Old Testament covenant are going to pass away. They're no longer going to be necessary. Why? Well, in the Old Testament, the point of worship was to get close to God, to get into the place where the most holy was, in the center of the temple. And so in order to do that, you had to make all sorts of sacrifices and offerings in order to get close to God, but not anymore. Because as Jesus says in John 2, destroy this temple and I will build it in three days. And John tells us that he was talking about his body. The Jesus' body is the temple now. The temple is no longer in the Middle East. The temple is wherever Jesus' body is. Hint, hint, this is my body. You want to be close to God. You want to be in God's presence. You want the holiness of God right here every Sunday at 2900 Argentia in Mississauga, Ontario. Jesus' body shows up and you can be close to it because the old sacrificial system has passed away and a new covenant is in place. It continues then, at the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Uh, Again, this is a place where the translators show their bias. Um, Their understanding of this is that there is going to be uh, a time where there's going to be an antichrist who is going to show up, and that guy is going to take over the church, and uh, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but they're trying to read that into this last verse when that's really not what this verse is about. Um, The way this text reads in English in the New International Version makes it seem like um, the, the ruler, that is the anointed one, is the one who's going to be setting up this abomination that causes desolation. Um, That's just not what it really reads. Here's a literal translation of this verse. It says, On the wings of the detested things is a desolator until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Which obviously is a really hard translation, which is why it doesn't show up. Um, But this is why it's a blessing to have pastors who know Hebrew and Greek so that we can understand this. All it's really saying is just from the moment where Jesus creates a new covenant, the Antichrist is going to be present. Um, And if you're interested in the Antichrist, I preached a whole bunch on that in Mark 13 last year. Um, You can find that sermon on our podcast, our YouTube channel, um, if you want to go a little bit deeper on that, but I'm not going to today. 
So how do you make sense of all this? <laughs> um, what, do you, what do you say as sort of a summary of this? Um, here's what I wrote down. The command to rebuild Jerusalem will go out. It will happen, but the Jews will suffer through it until Jesus comes. When Jesus comes, he will die, institute a new covenant, and then Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed and the Antichrist will be inaugurated. That's what's going on in this text. Now, like I said, some people might differ on exactly the differences of some of those things, um, but what we do have to do now is make sure that we explore uh, a system that just cannot make sense. It's like looking at a car and seeing a cow. And like I said, it's premillennial dispensationalism is the name of it. Um, most of the time when I put big words up on the screen and I usually say something like, you don't really need to know this, uh, this is one I actually hope you are kind of aware of. You maybe don't need to know all the definitions of it, but you need to like have your ears perk up when you hear this, because this is a system that is held to by a good amount, maybe even the majority of Protestants in North America today. Um, the Catholics don't believe this, the Orthodox don't believe this, the Lutherans don't believe this, but a good chunk of North American evangelicalism believes in premillennial dispensationalism. Um, now, I'm going to explain everything about this, but I, I'm doing this because even though there might be some of you who are like, what? I need to take a nap right now. Um, there are some of you who have interacted with this before, or you will interact with this before. And even if you don't interact with it in a direct way, like where somebody is pushing this view on you, this informs people's theology. Like, how do they think about evangelism? How do they think about grace? How do they think about Jesus? It can be, a, it can be informed by this system. So this is just to help us sort of put our guard up a little bit against a very dangerous false teaching. Okay, everyone take a deep breath. We're, for, we're through the first part. What is premillennial dispensationalism? Uh, premillennial dispensationalism is a system of theology that was born in the 19th century. It actually has no historical precedent before the late 1800s, which is one of the big reasons to believe that it's not actually in the Bible, since no one noticed it for the better part of 19 centuries. Um, it's a system that believes that the entire history of the world is broken into seven different eras or epochs. Uh, these seven different eras or epochs uh, mark different ways that God has dealt with people. So in our era, in their system, uh, God deals with people by forgiving their sins through the preaching of the gospel. That's this era. But there are numerous eras before this where God dealt with people differently than he does right now. Uh, they would say the reason that we're in this era where the gospel is being preached for the forgiveness of sins is because Jesus originally came to become the Messiah of Israel, but uh, the, the plan failed. Uh, that, that Jesus came and tried to be the Messiah and it didn't work. And the Jews rejected Jesus, and so God said, okay, well, we're going to have to circle back on this whole salvation thing. So I'm going to let Jesus die. I'm going to bring him back to heaven. I'm going to start the New Testament church, and we're going we're to replan here and try to come back and win the, win the Jews later. Which you can maybe already see the problem with this system is that it robs you of the cross being the centerpiece of our salvation. Um, in their system, the cross, the death on the cross of Jesus is an accident. It was plan B. But anyways, they're in this system now where Jesus is in heaven, and there's going to be sometime in the future a secret rapture that's going to happen. The secret rapture is going to happen when the city of Jerusalem is rebuilt, the temple built on the Temple Mount, and Jesus can come back and rule on earth. The secret rapture is going to be kind of like a big vacuum cleaner where God is going to suck up all the Christians out of this world and leave all the non-Christians on earth so that he can rule from Jerusalem on earth for a thousand years. 
At the end of a thousand years, there's going to be this thing called a great tribulation where Satan is going to marshal all of the forces of evil to try to destroy the church. It's going to be particularly terrible for seven years or three and a half years, depending on who you ask. At the end of it, Jesus is going to end all things and bring in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's okay if you didn't follow me on all of that, but that's their system, okay? Um, Now, again, I'm sure there's some variations in there. At some point, it's like herding cats, but that's the basic idea of what's happening. Uh, This is dangerous, like I said, because it makes the cross of Jesus secondary, but it also is dangerous because it's just not biblical. Um, There are clear passages of the Bible that contradict these ideas. So let me just do three of them for you. Um, The first of them is this idea that Jerusalem needs to be rebuilt and the temple needs to be rebuilt on the temple mount in Jerusalem in order for Jesus to come back. Uh, The reason that they believe this is they believe that all the Old Testament prophecies that were made about Israel have to be fulfilled by the nation of Israel. The problem with that is that's just not what the Bible says. Uh, The Bible actually shows us this idea that Jesus is Israel reduced to one. Jesus is the nation of Israel in one person because God's people, Israel, were not faithful to the covenant that God had given them. God said, well, you guys failed at this, so now I'm going to have to do it for you. And so Jesus comes, fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies, is Israel in a real way so that God can fulfill all of his promises. You actually see this really clearly in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew's Gospel is written to particularly Old Testament Christians. um, And he writes that in the same way that Israel was in Egypt and they came out of Egypt and they went through the waters of the Red Sea and into the wilderness for 40 years and then into the Promised Land. Well, how does Matthew's Gospel start? Well, look at how he starts it here. Chapter two, he says, Joseph got up, took, his chi- took the child, that's Jesus, and his mother in the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod, who was trying to kill Jesus. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son, which is a quote from Hosea chapter 11 about Israel and how God called Israel out of Egypt. But now he's doing it with Jesus. And what happens after Jesus comes out of Egypt? Well, he goes through the waters of baptism, right? And into the wilderness for not 40 years, but 40 days, where he fall, where he fall or does not fall for Satan's temptations. He's a perfect example of what Israel should have been in the wilderness until he enters Jerusalem, the promised land, and begins his ministry. See, Jesus is Israel reduced to one, and therefore all the promises of Old Testament Israel are fulfilled in Jesus, which means they're fulfilled in you, because you are in Jesus, And so if you read those Old Testament prophecies about Israel, they're about you. They're about the body of Jesus, which you are contained in, which you are by faith. And so this idea that Jerusalem needs to be rebuilt, which is often called Zionism, um, it's just not biblical. It's a way to distract from the message of the gospel. Um, And unfortunately, this is very common among Protestants in North America. Okay, so that's one. I could go farther on that. If you do want more, please ask me. But here's a second one. The secret rapture, it's not a thing. Um, The secret rapture, like I said, is this idea that at some point, completely surprisingly, completely secretly, all the Christians are just going to be taken away, right? And all the non-believers are going to be left behind, is very often the phrase. Um, This comes from, they'll say it comes from 1 Thessalonians 4. But as you look at this text, it just clearly doesn't say this. Uh, Look what Paul writes to the Thessalonians. He says, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he's saying, who's going to come first? Not the Christians who are on earth, but those who are dead, 
who are raised up on the last day. Right? How does he say it's going to happen? The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. This is not going to be secret. It's going to be very obvious. And the dead in Christ are going to rise. And then he continues, after that, we who are still alive are going to be, and are left are going to be caught up together with them in the clouds. So we will meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. What very basically is going to happen in the last day, Jesus is going to show up, the dead are going to rise, and those Christians who are not dead yet are going to keep going up to be with God in heaven forever. And it's all going to be very obvious. But some will say, well, what about that one passage in Matthew 24, where Jesus says that two men will be in a field and one will be taken and the other left? Or two women will be grinding at the handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Isn't that the show of the rapture? Well, in context, no. No. Uh, Because what does Jesus say right before this? He says, it will be like the days of Noah. And what happened in the days of Noah? Well, Noah built a big boat and the water came and swept away all of the non-believers and who was left behind? Noah and his family, the believers, right? If anyone's going to be taken away, it's going to be those who don't believe in Jesus. And who is going to be left behind? Those who do believe in Jesus, And so if there is something that you want to call a rapture, it's definitely not Christians being taken away. It's in fact non-Christians being taken away so that the Christians can enjoy the new heavens and new earth that are promised to us by God. Okay, one last one. This idea of the tribulation, we're already in it. Um, For the premillennial dispensationalists, this is a a thing to look forward to after the millennium, seven years of tribulation, and you'd be really scared about it. Um, which also should be a problem. Like if your theology is leading you to be more and more scared, it's not about Jesus then. Um, because Jesus is here to be, give you peace and comfort in your tribulation. But the Bible is just very clear. There's no coming tribulation. It's already right now. Um, to give you a, a clear verse on this, this is Revelation 1. John the Apostle writes that he is your brother and companion in the tribulation. He's with you in it right now. You're in it right now. This is the tribulation. Satan is trying really hard to destroy the church, but you have this comfort. Jesus has already won. Jesus has you. You're baptized. You're loved. You're secure. You're promised heaven. Nothing can take you out of his hand. Nothing can touch you, ultimately. You're free. You're safe. You're good. Which is why this system is so dangerous, because it robs you of that, doesn't it? It takes away the comfort of the gospel and says, you got to be rapture ready. Make sure you got all your works in order. And you got to work really hard to make sure we rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Better donate money to this cause. And you better be ready for that tribulation. It's going to be really hard and really painful and really sad. Or you can believe the gospel. Jesus wins. You're safe. Pray until he comes. So let's back up. Because we're all in the weeds here. And this is really heady and nerdy, and I'm really sad about it because it just ruins the fact that this text is so beautiful and it gives us such comfort, comfort that should just make our heart melt when we think about what God promised to Daniel and what he has fulfilled in Jesus. Let me just read from you the end of uh, a paper that was written by one of my college professors on this text. He writes a big, long thing. He explains all the different pieces of it, but then he finishes with these last couple paragraphs that I just think are so good for focusing our mind on what really matters here. He writes, it is regrettable that this remarkable prophecy that is studied so much with a view uh, to chronology, uh, so much of this discussion of this passage has to do with laying out the right timeline. People seem preoccupied with the arithmetic, not the gospel comfort. 
Before we leave it today, we do well to take note of its splendid message of God's grace in Christ, found especially in the six verses of verse 24. Through the Messiah's work, we have the full saving blessings of God. The Messiah has put an end to sin. He has atoned for wickedness. The standard word for atone has the picture of covering over. Our sins are covered. The Messiah has brought in everlasting righteousness. We think of the imputed righteousness of Christ. This is the righteousness which is perfect for all eternity. The Messiah has sealed up vision and prophecy. At the very least, this means that Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament messianic prophecies, or some would even say that this means that there are no further visions or prophecies that are necessary. Without a doubt, this prophecy was intended to be a joyful message for Daniel. Sure, the rebuilt Jerusalem would be destroyed again, but it would not happen until the messianic blessings had been fully brought there would be the anointing of a new most holy place, a new most holy one. As Daniel was wondering about the future of Jerusalem, he was given good things to look forward to. The mercies of God would come in full measure through the Messiah in the coming 70 weeks. We too should see the consoling importance of this prophecy. Focus on the gospel blessings. When one sees how the passage is sometimes used strictly for purposes of chronology, One is reminded of the statement of Martin Luther. He once said that the devil is trying to mislead theologians by two ways. Number one, by work righteousness. And number two, by inducing them to leave the essentials to discuss less less important things in religion. Finally, remember this as one of two passages in the entire Old Testament which speak of the coming Savior as the Messiah. We should not forget that it is one of only two passages in the Old Testament which use the phrase anointed one or Messiah, with Psalm 2 being the other. We commonly put the word Messiah in the, words, in the mouths of the Old Testament people as the word which they use to refer to the coming Savior. Yet this term is used very rarely in the Old Testament. Daniel 9, however, offers us a passage where this treasured word is used twice. It is the Messiah who would come after 69 weeks. It is the Messiah who would be cut off for our salvation. As there were anointed priests, prophets, and kings in Old Testament times, so there would be one great anointed one who would come to fulfill these offices completely and perfectly. Wouldn't it be nice if Daniel 9, 24 to 27 were remembered for this special fact as much as for the 70 weeks? Wouldn't it be nice if this passage were known as the prophecy of the coming Messiah, rather than the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Look, this section is all about Jesus and his forgiveness, and Satan hates that. And so as much as he can, he will distract us from the beauty of what we know to be true in the gospel. And so thank you for sticking with me through this really heady and neat, nerdy and deep section of scripture. But what I want you to walk away from this with is the comfort that your God has a plan. He has fulfilled that plan and he will fulfill that plan for you. You are saved. You will live forever. Praise God. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us this difficult passage of scripture for us to learn how to read the Bible and also to find the comfort that you have for us in it. Bless the people who are still deceived by the lies of Satan to see this section is not full of comfort and you are grace. Bring them to know the truth of the scriptures that you have promised that you are coming soon. Amen, Lord Jesus. Please come soon. We ask that in your name. Amen. If you'd like to support Cross of